need. We've been in the series this summer talking through the book of Mark. And I like this portion of scripture because I like stories. And so I'm gonna keep it simple. We're gonna look at Mark chapter five and six today. And I'm just gonna tell some of those stories and pluck out a few things that stick out to me. Because these things, these stories, they come alive to me. They're not stories that happened then. They're stories that could happen right now. Does that make sense? And for me, I like to bring it into current vernacular because these are real people and these things really happen. This is not metaphor. Jesus really healed people. Jesus really called people to follow after him. This is the truth of God in the scripture form. These are the teachings of Jesus, the very words of God coming out of the mouth of God himself, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, the man, Jesus. And these are the accounts that his disciples have given. And in Mark chapter five, we find several different episodes And these things are happening in a linear way. They're one right after another. And it's kind of a fast-moving little picture that we see in these episodes through Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 6. And so just to kind of set the the scene a little bit, at the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus had just calmed the waves. He was asleep in the boat, remember that? He was asleep in the boat, and he had just calmed the storm. And the disciples, who had been with him for some period of time at this point, were again astonished at who Jesus was, saying, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey his commands? And so they were sort of amazed at what Jesus had done. And keeping in mind what they're doing now, they're going back and forth in these scenes. They're going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and around the areas that are close therein. You see, back in that time, the west side of the Sea of Galilee is where the Jewish folks were, and the east side of the Sea of Galilee is where the Gentiles lived. And so we jump in on the scene where they were crossing the lake from the west side, going to the east side, and as soon as they land on the shore, and here again, every time that they get one place or another, there's a huge crowd because the fame of Jesus had grown so much that people knew who he was. He was a popular dude. People wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. To some, he was the one that they had been praying for. He was the one that their father's father's father had told them about. He's the, the, the coming Messiah. To some, they believed that and they recognized that that's who Jesus was. And in fact, that is who he was. But to some, he was a blasphemer. To some, he was an enemy of the religious establishment. To some, he was a ruffian and a rabble rouser that was causing trouble. But everybody, nonetheless, whatever their perspective was, they wanted to see who Jesus was. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Where did this wisdom come from? What are the things that he is saying? And what is going on with these miracles and these healings? And no matter where they went, there was a crowd that would gather. And some of this, some of this, these episodes, the disciples along with Jesus, they're actually seeking to retreat from the crowd and go take respite and have something to eat and have a time to rest. But the crowds keep coming. The crowds keep coming. So they've gone from the west side of the sea over to the east side of the sea and they're getting out on the shore. And as soon as they do, this guy runs up to them because he recognized Jesus. This guy is what is referred to as a demoniac, a demon-possessed maniac. This is a dude that lived in the tombs and he was crazy and he would call out, the Bible says. He would call out during the night, all through the watches of the night, screaming and tearing at himself, cutting himself with stones. Many had tried to bind him with chains around his wrist 
and around his ankles, but he broke those loose. None could contain him. None could cast out the demons and none could do anything to heal this guy. And he recognized who Jesus was. And the demon's legion that lived inside of him recognized who Jesus was and his authority. And so they came and they bowed at Jesus' feet once he hit the shore and pleaded for mercy and pleaded not to be cast out of the region. And Jesus, this is, I mean, just imagine that listening to demons plead for mercy in front of you. Remember, there's a scene, there's a crowd. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. And so Jesus actually grants the mercy in a totally hilarious way. In my opinion, it's hilarious. There's 2,000 pigs hanging out over here, and the demon's asked to go in the pigs, and he's like, okay, go to the pigs. So he goes to the pigs, and they run into the sea, and they drown. (laughs) And then we skip to the end of the story, and we move on, and we act like nothing else is going on. But there was a group of people there, the people who own the pigs, right? And they're cronies. And the people who own the pigs, they ran back into the town, and they're like, hey, Home Slice is out here, like, destroying my livelihood. Let's get rid of this guy. They wanted Jesus to get the heck out of there. I mean, think about that. If Jesus showed up and, like, blew up your business, you know, if he was just like, you know, you wouldn't be feeling great about it, I don't think. I wouldn't. I'd like to say I'm spiritual enough to be like, cool, thanks, Jesus. That was great. But that, they, were, they were trying to get rid of this dude. He was stirring up what was going on. But the demons legion, they left, and they were drowned by the pigs. And the man wanted to go with Jesus along with the disciples and the others that were there. But Jesus forbade him. He said, no, 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 no. Go home and tell everybody of the mercy that you were shown here. That's exactly what the man did. He went back and he told of the mercy that was shown to him all over the Decapolis, right? He took with him the testimony that Jesus had given him. And then they were preparing to leave, moving on, most likely trying to get away from the crowds. And as they were moving on, Jairus, one of the leaders of the synagogue, comes running up to him. And he's like, my daughter is sick. She's gonna die. I need you to come heal her. And he was pleading with Jesus. And now this was not normal because to the, to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees and to the, the ruling council of the Jewish law, the Sanhedrin, Jesus was a problem. They had not bought into him being the Messiah. They thought he was a blasphemer, blasphemer and he was a problem at this point. Certainly there were some individual religious leaders who saw Jesus for who he was, but it was very uncommon for a leader of the synagogue to come up and put his trust in Jesus for healing, for miracles. But Jairus did this. And so he's there pleading with Jesus and Jesus agrees to go along with him to heal his daughter. And as he's going along the road, the crowd was pressing in. And I talked to you about how famous Jesus was. I mean, this was like, you know, think of the most famous person you can think of. You know, I was trying earlier, I was discussing with some of the other pastors, who's the famous person I can talk about? And I'm like, I wasn't gonna, there's certain names that came up. I'm like, I can't say that. If I even say that name, I'm like a sinner, right? And so I was trying to think of, of, of you know, somebody popular, somebody famous. And I can think of it as like Ed Sheeran or like, uh, I can't even, I, uh, she whose name we do not speak. 
um, the the famous rapper person that LeBron James. LeBron James, he's famous, right? If people, thank you, Jose. This is our pastor, Jose, right here. Thank you. Bailed me out on that one. I was about to say something horrible. <laughs> um, but you know, he was a famous guy, right? Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. And the crowds were pressing in, the crowds were pressing in. And as he's on his way to heal this, this girl, this 12-year-old girl, a woman who had an issue for 12 years, a sickness that's unique to women. She'd had this sickness for 12 years. She had exhausted everything that she had in her life. She'd gone to all the doctors. She'd spent all of her money and continued to get worse and was not healed. And her desperation told her that all she had to do, if she would just, she had heard about this Jesus guy, this famous Jesus guy who was healing people. And her desperation told her that all she had to do was to reach through and touch his clothes and then she would be healed. So Jesus is walking with his disciples who are always helpful and insightful, the disciples. And she reaches through and she touches the cloak, the, the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops because he felt the power go out of him and says, isn't that creepy? Sorry, it's creepy to me. All these people around, I'm more like one of the disciples, not insightful and not helpful, okay? <laughs> I'm thinking, that's really strange. And the disciples essentially rebuke Jesus. They're like, how can you say, who touched me? Everyone is touching you. How can you say, who touched me? And he turns, Jesus does, as the woman pushes her way through the crowd. We see him say that, you know, who touched me in verse 30 there. And the woman pushes through the crowd and she comes and confesses, it was me, I did it. And then the Bible says that she told him the whole story. Okay, the whole story, okay? So she was sick for 12 years and went to a bunch of doctors and it didn't get better and she lost all of her money. So that's the long story. And she told him the whole thing. I don't know if anybody's ever told you the whole story, but I'm checking my uh, phone after about 30 seconds. I'm like, you know, people try to tell me the whole story, and I'm just like, okay, all right, that's good, got to go. Got 37 text messages and 500 emails. Are you done yet? I don't care. Why are you still talking? Right? But Jesus, thankfully, he's not like me. Jesus listened. He listened to the whole story. Can you imagine someone, maybe you have been, I've been desperate in my life, have you? I've been desperate in my life. And if I told you the whole story, you'd be there for quite some time trying to get the heck out of there. But this woman was desperate and she'd lost everything in her life. And Jesus stood with compassion and listened to every word. She told him the whole story and he heard it and had compassion on it, keeping in mind that he already knew it right? But he had compassion and he took the time to listen. And those who respond, responded to him, this woman who responded to him, received her healing. He said, it was you have faith and your faith has healed you, woman. And she told him the whole story. And so Jesus, in verse 34, he tells her to go in peace and he sends her on with her testimony. He sent the demoniac back to his town to tell the testimony of what had been done to him, the mercy that had been shown to him through the love of Jesus. And he sends this woman on in peace, a woman tormented for 12 years. And at the end of everything that she had to remedy her own situation, 
He sends her in peace with her testimony. And as he is speaking to her, as he's sending her off, as the Bible says, as he's still talking, so literally in mid-sentence, Jairus' people come up with a report that his daughter is dead. She's died. And that they need to stop bothering Jesus because clearly he's got other stuff to do now that this girl is dead. And Jesus says something very, very interesting. They're in a desperate situation. This, his daughter has died. But Jesus had just demonstrated his abilities. He had just demonstrated his authority over the demons. He had just demonstrated his authority over the terrestrial things, over this world, over health and healing. He just demonstrated those things. This woman who had had the problem for 12 years. And then he says to Jairus, whose daughter is 12 and is presumed to be dead, it's reported to be dead. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. What a foolish thing in our minds it is to just believe. In our hearts and minds, when we read that, sometimes when I read things in the scripture that I don't automatically agree with, sometimes I hear that and I think in my own reasoning and in my own humanity, in my own secular humanism, that I'm the one that can solve the problem. Just to believe, what does that mean? Just to believe. How do I believe my daughter is dead? How can I just believe? And instead of looking to our own unbelief, we assume God to be a fool for telling us to believe. Maybe you're not guilty of that, but I have been in my life. And what a countercultural thing it is to actually believe. It's even countercultural in our churches now to actually believe that God is who he says he is and that this scripture, that God is powerful enough to maintain the veracity of the word. I don't want to have anything to do with a God who's not powerful enough to direct men to maintain the veracity and the truth of his word written down through the pen of mankind. It's true. It's real. It's the written, true word of God. It's indisputable. It's irrefutable. So let's turn off our secular humanism. Let's turn off our own ability to reason and let's believe. Let's be people who are counterculture. That's what he's asking. It was countercultural in that day as well. See, I, I know in my mind that I sometimes have this disconnect. I think that these people in the biblical times are somehow vastly different than me. They lived in a different culture. They didn't have the technology that we have. But their minds were just as attentive and their minds had the same questions and their families had the same challenges. Compounded, yes, by circumstances that we don't face, but it's the same thing. And the scripture tells us this, that Jesus, when he was on the earth, he faced all the things that were common to men and we won't be tempted with something that is not considered common. These people aren't that different. Jesus wasn't asking them to do something that was easier than it is to do now. It's just as hard then as it is now. But let us be people who are countercultural and actually believe what God says. And so he goes on to the house. And when he shows up in the house and we see this scene in verse 39 and 40, Jesus walks up to the house and the mourners are wailing loudly and having big fits about this person who 
had died, this young girl who had died, and that's fitting. It's fitting for that to happen. Imagine if that had happened in your family. It's, it's a fitting scenario to be mourning. And Jesus walks up to them and says, why are you mourning and wailing? She is not dead, she is only asleep. Which is a powerful statement to claim that when clearly all these people, these people aren't stupid. They can tell whether someone is alive or dead. And when he says she is just asleep, what happens? They laugh. They laugh at him. I wonder if we're willing to be laughed at. I wonder if having faith in Jesus that he's able to do the things that no one else can do. And when he says something that doesn't agree with culture, when he says something that I don't automatically think is the right thing for the situation, are we willing to believe him or are we going to laugh at him? Do we laugh when we read something in the scripture like, oh man, that's not relevant to today. There's no way that could be true for today. We're laughing at God in the same way these people are laughing at Jesus. Let me tell you something that's absolutely true. Every word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is the truth. Always has been, it always will be. There is no way to change that. And he says that this girl is asleep. And so he won't be deterred by the laughter. And so he goes in and we see in verse 41, he goes in with the parents of the girl and three of his disciples and he walks in and he grabs the girl's hand and he says to her, Talitha kum. It's always interesting to me in the scriptures when they write it down and it's not transliterated. Transliteration just means, uh, you know, a, a, a phrase or an idea that doesn't have a direct translation into our language. They kind of put a phrase together that means the same thing. So they transliterate or they make an, or they can take, or you take a name that's spelled in a certain way that's impossible to pronounce and you re-spell it so that someone in our language could say the word, right? They put Talitha kum in there and it's not transliterated. And in, in most versions of the Bible, right after that, they do a translation that says, he grabs her by the hand and says, little girl, stand up. But what's important here to, to, to notice, and this is, just, this is just me, this is uh, significant to me, is that this, this term, this phrase, has an etymological tie to the word baby lamb or little lamb or precious lamb. And to say these things the way that Jesus said it to this little girl would be like a father saying to his, his precious daughter in, in, in the kindest, most heartfelt way, my little lamb, stand up. And so he says, Talitha kum to this young girl who is 12 years old, and she stands up and begins to walk around, and she's fully alive and fully healed. And then he says something else that I think is quite hilarious. He says, get her something to eat, because what else do you do for a 12-year-old? You get them something to eat, because they will eat everything in your house, and they will take all your money, and they will eat it. I have three teenage daughters. Pray for me often, please. And they will eat what's in your refrigerator and in what's in your refrigerator and mine and yours and everybody else's. 
give her something to eat. There's a few more episodes that that we're familiar with in this passage as we move into chapter 6 of Mark. Jesus goes home for a little time of respite and rest, and we learn that a prophet is without honor in his own home. It says that the people kind of jeered at Jesus and were like, amen, aren't you the little jerk that used to run around here and mess with stuff, and isn't your brother this guy, and don't we have your sisters here among us? And they didn't really give him much respect. And if another funny thing the Bible says there is that he wasn't able to do many miracles, just heal a few people, as if that's not a miracle. I don't know, you just go heal? I don't know, do you, is that what you do on a Tuesday? You just, I mean, are you able to just heal people? That's what Jesus is doing. And then he sends out the 12 to heal people and to cast out demons, and they go out. And then, you know, Herod, King Herod, hears of all of this stuff, and he gets mad. And they retell the story here as as sort of a weird aside in the middle of Mark chapter 6. They retell the story of Herod uh, beheading John the Baptist. And they tell that story because a lot of people are saying, oh, who is this Jesus guy? He's Elijah. He's this guy. He's that guy. He's whatever. He's a blasphemer. He's a new prophet. And some were saying that he was John the Baptist resurrected. And so I guess it's as a refute to that, they tell the story of Herod being angry and cutting off John the Baptist's head, which is just a little gruesome. But, uh, you know, hey, that's what happened. And then as Jesus, again, was going to take respite with his disciples, and who knows how many times they crossed back and forth to see a Galilee during this, you know? Because, you know, he, he walks on water next, which is really great, but he goes, he feeds the 5,000, he sees the crowds who had come, even though they're trying to retreat, and he has compassion on them. And we know about the five loaves and the two fishes, and they're multiplied, and there were 5,000 men, so that means there were quite a bit more people there than 5,000, and Jesus feeds them all through his miracles, and they collect the baskets up at the end. And then Jesus sends them across the lake again, and he sends them off ahead, and he stays back, and he goes to pray. And then about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus takes a leisurely stroll across the lake. We know this because the Bible said that he was passing by them. He wasn't going, he wasn't going to the boat. He was going to beat them there. He was just going, he was walking. Across the water, straightest distance, you know, the shortest distance between two points, straight line. He's not walking around, he's going straight across. Right? But because the disciples, again, always helpful and always insightful, are scared of everything, even after all that they've seen, they see this thing they think is a ghost, they're terrified, and Jesus is like, all right, okay, here we go. And so he walks over there, tells them, hey, chill, it's going to be fine, it's me, gets in the boat, calms down the waves again. He's like, ah, y'all guys are killing me, you know? All these little episodes we see. And we get to the end of sort of this this little chunk of things that Jesus is doing. And we're in verse 55 of chapter 6. It says that the disciples and Jesus were going throughout the countryside and people were bringing their sick, wherever they heard that Jesus was going to be, they would bring their sick into the marketplaces so that when the disciples and Jesus entered in and the crowds entered in, they could be healed and people were being healed. But something that was very, very interesting happened. They were begging to touch his garment. So out of all of these things that they've seen Jesus do, they take away, this is what what they take away. Well, if I want to get healed, all I got to do is touch his shirt. 
totally superfluous, like totally missed the point. And don't we do that? They'd come up with a formula on how to get healed. Right? And we know from other parts in the scripture, and even just this, that Jesus heals in different ways. Sometimes he spits in the mud, which is super weird. You know, and sometimes he just heals, you know, by proxy. He just says, hey, your faith has healed so-and-so. Go home, they'll be fine. Right? Sometimes he stands in front of a tomb and he calls Lazarus out. Lazarus, come forth. Take off the grave clothes. Right? Jesus heals in different ways. But no, 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 no. Here we've come up with a formula. So the demoniac who is healed, he goes off and he tells everybody about this Jesus and Jesus' fame grows. And then the woman who touched the hem of the garment, she goes and she tells everybody about what Jesus has done. And the family has their testimony of their daughter being raised up from being dead. And they, they share all this testimony. And what the people come up with is a formula. They come up with a set of rules, a way that you can get healed. And they're begging Jesus to touch his cloak. And of course, Jesus has compassion on people because it's their faith, right? They're coming and putting their faith in Jesus and he's having compassion on people and healing them. But don't we do that? We come up with our version of how to be touched by God. We have all of our formulas and our certainties and our sure ways to achieve peace and health and comfort and significance. And people around us decide what we need. You know, we're given these these methods, they know what our concerns are and how to remedy our problems. And people are passionate about this stuff. I mean, you've heard it. You've heard these passionate people. I'm pretty sure everybody that's got a phone in here has experienced one of these passionate people who has a remedy for us. They have a deep concern for your car's warranty. (laughs) And they are persistently pursuing you because their records indicate that your warranty has expired. (laughs) Superfluous garbage. I come up with it, we come up with it, and we come up with these patterns, but it is the work of Jesus that heals us. And he uniquely cares for us. When we come to him in faith, and tell him the whole story. He listens. And yes, he is faithful to heal us. Yes, he is faithful to heal us. But what's interesting is what is left out, even in a different part of scripture, like at the pool of Bethesda. Are you familiar with that? It was a pool where people would go and get healed. And they thought that an angel would come down and stir the waters. And so the first person that would get in the water would get healed. This is, not, this is for free. Didn't preach this first service, right? And so there were all kinds of lepers and, and, and crippled people all around this, right? And Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and he heals one guy. There are quite literally and possibly thousands of people there who needed physical healing. And Jesus heals one guy. Why just one? I don't know. Jesus is the one who chooses by the power and authority given him through God the Father, who he together is one and the same in the triune God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the plan of God, he chooses when to heal, who to heal, how to heal, and with what medium he is going to use to heal. And so in that knowledge, we do not pursue 
the healing process, we pursue the healer. We pursue the power of God in our lives and we submit ourselves to the truth of God. We do not, we should not be afraid to ask. We should not be afraid to share our story. We should not be afraid to come to Jesus in our desperation because he will turn our ear to us and then he will make the choice on how to heal us, when to heal us, and through what means. And so when I read the scripture, thank God for our Pastor Jose. This is Jose. He's there. He bailed me out once on the message already. And for the overseers that we have in our church that provide covering and authority to us, and they've got us on this on this journey of, of, of interpreting scripture, the OIA method, observe, interpret, and apply. And when I apply scripture, what I like to do is I like to ask myself questions. What is this telling me to do? What am I supposed to get out of this? How am I supposed to change? How are the things that are in my mind and in my heart that are opposed to the ways of God, how can I bring those into right standing? And so I have these three questions. I'll put them into the universal tense but I have these three questions for us today. The first is, do we speak the testimony of Jesus' work in our lives? The example we have in these episodes is that Jesus heals and then the, the people go out and they speak their testimony. They carry with them their testimony. Do we speak the testimony of Jesus in our lives? Maybe you've come to prayer ministry on Mondays and, and, and God has chosen to heal you physically or spiritually, or financially, or relationally, are you carrying that testimony with you into your day-to-day? Are you carrying that testimony with you? Are you speaking the truth of God and what he's done? Are you spreading the name and the fame of Jesus as you go in everything that you do? Second question, do we seek Jesus or only his miracles? We just talked about that. Are we seeking to have Jesus as our get-out-of-jail-free card or are we seeking relationship with Jesus himself to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds? To having relationship with the person, 100% man, 100% God, the only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him does not perish. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, are we pursuing him or are we pursuing some get-out-of-jail-free card, some charm? When we come to the end, after we've done everything, after we've come up with everything that we can think of, oh, I guess all we have left to do is pray. Well, let's, let's be people who start there. Let's be people who start there. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking to myself. I'm preaching these things to myself. I say them with passion because these are the things that God teaches me. I really do ask these questions of myself. Do we seek Jesus or just his miracles? Do we seek Jesus or just the stuff of Jesus? And then the third one. Do we live as people who are called by God? Each person in their life has a calling. We have a talents, we have skills, we have things that we like to do, we have our careers. Maybe you're a student, maybe whatever it is that you do, we're called to know Jesus and to make him known. Right? You have a calling on your life. Do we live as people called by God? And he will call you uniquely and intimately to the things that he has set in front of you in eternity past, the good works that he has planned. 
He'll call you to those things. And he'll equip you where he calls you. Because he doesn't call you because you're talented. He doesn't call you because you're smart or because you got things figured out. We look at the disciples. We look at what were the, what were the credentials of the demoniac, the man possessed by demons? What were his credentials? We don't even know. It doesn't say anything about the dude before or after. We don't, we don't know anything about that. What was, what was this woman's, what was her, the, the, the woman who had been sick for 12 years, what were her credentials? You know, what has she done to earn her healing? Not an enchilada, big fat zero, nothing, you know? He doesn't call us because we're qualified. He calls us because he loves us and he has a distinct purpose for us and he wants to intersect our lives and he chooses to use us through his plan that's already been intact since eternity past. He chooses to call us up and use us for his purposes to be worked out in the kingdom of the earth and in the affairs of mankind. He called to Adam and Eve when they had sinned. He called to Noah to partner with him in the preservation of humanity. He called to Moses for the deliverance of his people. He called David to be king as the most unlikely character. He called Solomon to build the temple. He called Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to simple obedience in the face of a corrupt culture. He called Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. He called Mary to carry the God-man Jesus to full term and to give birth. He called his disciples to be fishers of men. He called Lazarus forth from the tomb. He called Peter out on the water and he called Paul out of religious bondage for the sake of the gospel. And now you and I are called. We're called to go and to do likewise, carrying with us the testimony that God has given us through his redemption of our souls. To the glory of God, let us be the people who speak the life-giving words and the mercy of God as we go.